maybe, you know, somebody who's a person of color or came from a lower socioeconomic status or, you know, a rural community or whatever, didn't have the same opportunities, doesn't mean there's not talent. Because the next thing is to believe that talent and contributions come in different packages than what you might have been used to. And so if you believe there are inequities and you believe that there is talent out there, even though it looks different than what I've seen before or what I've been surrounded by before, then you have to believe that having a diversity of talent makes your company stronger and makes your team stronger. Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Leveling Up is made possible by Marlowe. Marlowe enables you to support your managers and emerging leaders with twice monthly sessions led by Marlowe's expert management development coaches. Partnering with their coaches, Marlowe members focus on the skills that matter most to them. Skills like communication, time management, people management, strategic awareness, and more. Support your managers and emerging leaders wherever they are in their journey with Marlowe's one-to-one coaching and training. Head to getmarlowe.com for more information. Today's episode is with Treyanza Adams. Treyanza is a board member and advisor to startups and early stage companies. She has over 30 years of experience building and leading global people teams, spanning five continents and various industries, including enterprise software, ed tech, fintech, health tech, and social services. She was most recently the chief people officer for H1, a pre-IPO health tech company. And prior to H1, Treyanza led the people function for numerous early and mid-stage companies, including Uda Health, Ginger, and App Dynamics. She also led the people function in a nonprofit for six years, as well as spending five years at Salesforce. In all of her roles, Treyanza focuses on creating an inclusive environment where people feel like they can belong and thrive. Treyanza holds a BA from Stanford University, and as a plant-based eater, she spends her Sunday afternoons making delicious vegan meals for her friends, family, and pets. We dove into tactical tips and tricks for how to create a more equitable and inclusive work environment. Treyanza also has a ton of great ideas through deep experience on how to approach this return to work, how to think about reducing the amount of burnout that employees are facing. We kind of covered a lot. And so I think you'll love this episode. I really loved it. Let's get on with the show. You have more than 20 years of experience in HR leadership and our listeners just heard your great bio. I'd love to dive into your journey, your background. How did you get into HR? And we'll take the conversation from there. Yeah. So I've always been someone who's interested in human nature and specifically how to help people be the best that they can be and how to maximize their strengths. And that's kind of the first thing. And the second thing is I've always been interested in business. So my father was an entrepreneur and I majored in sociology at college, which as you know, is the study of people in groups, which is what a company is, people in groups. And so people ops or HR, but people ops as we call it now, combines the best of both of those worlds. So how to maximize people's strengths and how to make a business run. That's how I was oriented to this career. And then when I was in college, I did a half day shadowing session with an HR director. And that said to me, that's what I want to do. So I started my career at Oracle. And once I got there, I was let it be known that I wanted to move into HR. And I was there for about nine months and then moved into the HR team and never looked back. I feel like it's such a 
an interesting route when people know from the very beginning, HR is definitely their thing. Do you find that that's normal or are you of a rare group of people who started from day one into HR? You know, I think there are some people who know, and then there are other people who have been in other parts of the business and come into it. And they're valuable too, because they bring in a different perspective of having been like an operator on the marketing side or the customer success side. So HR isn't really something that there are certifications you can get, but a lot of it is OTJ learning on the job. And so, you know, there's a diverse set of people that move into this field, which is great for the field. We won't spend a lot of time on COVID, but I am curious, what has been your takeaway over the past three years in terms of how companies are having to adjust based on this new world order? One of the things that COVID taught us is the importance of people's well-being and how that impacts their performance at work. And so we all got a lot more focused on health safety and that impacted. We stopped going to the office. Sometimes we had to, you know, have our kids at home. We had to change our work schedules. We had to work remotely. So all of those things really impacted, I think, people's priorities And, you know, when you look now and, you know, you see what we're calling the great resignation, although I appreciated what the CEO of LinkedIn, Ryan Roselansky said, he called it the great reshuffle because people aren't necessarily leaving the workforce per se, although some people are, but they're looking at their priorities and their values and their beliefs and seeing if those align with where they're at. And if not, they're going somewhere else. So, you know, I would say that was one of the main learnings from the past couple of years is we need to look at people as humans with a life, not just people who work for us. What organizations are you seeing do this particularly well in terms of thinking about their employees as humans who have other priorities and other lives? Like, have you seen any leaders in the space that we should be looking to, or is it still everybody's learning on the job as we go? You know, I think there's a lot of experimentation going on right now, and people are figuring out what's going to work for their teams and their business. A couple things that have been super interesting recently, though, are in in Europe, in the UK, you probably all read this, they are doing a a pilot about the four-day work week. So it's a six-month pilot. It's going to cover three over 3,000 workers in 70 companies in multiple industries. And they're, you know, seeing how well the four-day work week works. It's been a push here in California as well, but more on a company-by-company basis, although there is something in the legislature about mandating a four-day, a 32-hour work week. So that'll be really interesting. If it works well in the UK, how quickly other countries will adopt it? I'm curious, what as an HR leader would you be thinking about if your CEO came to you and said, hey, what are your thoughts on this? How could a company even start to consider a four-day work week and what that might look like, how that might impact them? Even ignoring, should we do it or should we not? What are they considering? Well, we actually did discuss this at H1. My CEO did come to me and say, I want to consider this four-day work week. And yeah, there's a lot of things to consider, particularly when you have a part of your organization that's customer-facing, if you have customer support, which most organizations do, how do you manage that? There are ways to make it work, though, whether you're doing split shifts or something like that. I think, though, so I love time off as much as anybody else loves time off. And I think the four-day work week is a way for work not to dominate people's lives as much. But I think as an answer to the burnout question, that's only part of the answer. 
people aren't burnout necessarily because they have too much work to do or because they have to go to work every day. There are, you know, it's different on a company by company basis, but there are fundamental reasons why people are burnt out. Maybe the systems in their company aren't very good. And so it just takes longer to get stuff done. That can be really aggravating and just wear on you. Maybe that you're an, a high achiever and an overperformer, which unfortunately that tends to lead to you getting the bulk of the work because your manager knows they can depend on you. Well, that can burn you out. And feeling like things aren't fair also contributes to people feeling burnt out. So I think that, you know, my takeaway from this whole thing is, yes, people's lives shouldn't be dominated by work and we should treat people as humans with a life, but also take a look internally at our own systems and processes and practices and how much are those contributing to people just being exhausted. You talked a little bit about other causes for burnout and things being unfair. Are you seeing organizational leaders make the right decisions around thinking about burnout as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion and and pulling in our, our team members who it's not set up fairly for them? How does that conversation start to happen with CEOs? Well, that's a really good question. And I want to talk about equity for a minute because we don't always understand what that actually means. So in the past, we used to talk about equality, right? And equality was everybody should be treated equally. And we should have, you know, if we give Bob something, we should give Susie the same thing. That's equality. Okay, that's fine. But it ignores a really important fact, which is that everybody is not starting from the same place. So equity really is giving people what they need, removing obstacles, connecting people to opportunities so that they can be competitive with everybody else. So they can have a fair chance. And so it does mean that we may have to invest more in certain people, that we may have to make more of an effort to give opportunities to some people than others. And I think it's really important when you're thinking about equity that there are steps to it, right? Like the first thing is understanding that everybody didn't start, is not starting in the same place. And a metaphor I like to use is think about a track and field race. So, you know, if it's 800 meters or whatever, they stagger the starting line. Everybody doesn't start at the same place in the starting line. Why? Because the distances when you're on the inside of the track are not the same as on the outside of the track. So they compensate, they stagger, and that gives people an equal opportunity. That's what equity is. So first thing you have to understand that. And the second thing is believe that everybody doesn't come from the same kind of situation. Even if that hasn't been your experience, maybe, you know, somebody who's a person of color or came from a lower socioeconomic status or, you know, a rural community or whatever, didn't have the same opportunities, doesn't mean there's not talent. Because the next thing is to believe that talent and contributions come in different packages than what you might have been used to. And so if you believe there are inequities and you believe that there is talent out there, even though it looks different than what I've seen before or what I've been surrounded by before, then you have to believe that having a diversity of talent makes your company stronger and makes your team stronger. If you can get that far, then you need to be willing to invest the time, the money, and the resources into bringing this underrepresented talent into your organization and creating an environment where they can be successful. So those are really important things things to, to understand when you're thinking about creating an equitable environment. And, you know, bringing it back to what you asked me initially about burnout, 
was, so figure if you are somebody who's, maybe you've gotten in the door, but your situation is inequitable. Maybe you don't get listened to in meetings. Maybe you don't have the same kind of opportunities. That's going to burn you out. You're going to be exhausted and demoralized, and you're going to find a place that has a better situation for you. And as a friend, I'd say, get the heck out of there, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? But but as, a, as an organizational leader, the question is, how do you reduce the quantity of people who are facing that type of situation, right? Like really helping nobody, hopefully nobody's facing the situation, but the reality is lots of people are. You talked a lot about really understanding these pieces and being bought into it and knowing that these are important to begin with so that you can start to impact change. A lot of our listeners are really bought in. These are HR leaders who want to get their senior leadership teams to truly understand the importance of leveling the playing field in, in certain ways. What advice do you have for them about how to approach that conversation in a way that actually gets results? And at what point do you just walk away and say, this company is not going to get there? So it does start with leadership. That is, that is very true. However, everybody owns culture. So we need to have the leaders bought in, but the company needs to buy in. Two. One company that I've seen has done a lot of work in this area is Headspace Health. And they brought in Life Labs Learning and rolled out some of their trainings to their leadership team and then, you know, rolled it out to a broader portion of the of the company. So I think that was the right approach. There's cost associated with that. A lot of our listeners are, you know, smaller companies that don't have a lot of money. So a lot of it is just looking at your current practices and asking yourself, is everybody really being included? I mean, I'll tell you, Mary, when I was at UDA, our new COO brought in a practice that I really liked. And he would, when there was something to be discussed, we'd take the first five minutes of the meeting to read. So you had to write it up. If you had something, you had to write it up. So we'd take the first however many minutes to read through. And then he would have put a section for everybody who was in the meeting to write their comments. So you're reading, you're writing your comments. And then you know, we'd go around the room and he would address, he'd give you an opportunity to talk about what you wrote. So that accomplished a couple of things. First of all, it gave people time to actually read and digest the information. And it would be sent out ahead of time, but you know, you're busy. Maybe you didn't have time to read it. So it was like, okay, we know you're busy. We're going to take time in the meeting to read. And then, you know, if you're more introverted or you're somebody who's got a quieter voice, or you're somebody who tends to dominate the meeting, and we all know those people, this leveled the playing field. So everybody's comments were out there and got discussed. That is creating an inclusive and equitable environment. Didn't cost you anything. My friend Andrew Stevens is part of an organization called EOS, which is Entrepreneurial Operating System, which basically provides tools and principles to optimize your people systems. He's out of the UK. He introduced an idea recently, I needed to post on LinkedIn about it, of brain writing which is similar. So if you're looking to make a decision or looking for an answer to something, you again, let everybody think about it for a little bit. And this was an in-office exercise, but I think you could translate it virtually as well, that you'd write your, everybody writes their ideas on cards. And then the facilitator or whoever's doing it collects the cards and puts them on the wall without showing who contributed what. And then, you know, people can walk around and look at the ideas and you can discuss the ideas. The idea is to get, you know, kind of a meritocracy of ideas rather than a meritocracy of people. Because, I mean, the studies have shown there are certain people who get listened to. And sometimes it's because of their status in the organization. Sometimes it's because they're, you know, there's gender issues going on there. And other people don't get a chance to have their ideas heard. 
So I haven't tried that, but I love it. Again, that didn't cost you anything, created a more inclusive and equitable environment. And imagine the ideas that probably come out of that conversation or that the sort of walking around, seeing new ideas that you've never considered. If you turn off your bias for just Mm -hmm. a moment to see what are all the crazy ideas out there, one of those could be the thing that brings in your next million dollars in revenue or cuts you tons of costs. And this starts to quantify, not that we should have to, but really quantify the reasons for organizational leaders to really sit back and, and do it. And like you said, it doesn't cost a thing to take that action. Yeah. You've been doing amazing things over at Open Imperative. Can you share more about what it is you've been working on, you and your team? I would love to talk about the Open Imperative. So I'm an advisor to that organization. So Open stands for Organizations for Pay Equity Now. And what the Open Imperative is, is it's a coalition of pre-IPO CEOs, founders, people leaders, investors that have committed to ending gender pay disparities in their organizations. So the premise of the open imperative is that building equitable compensation systems and practices at an early stage will lay the foundation for an equitable culture going forward. And we see a lot of inequity in compensation. So that was a good place to start. It's also allied with OpenComp, which is a compensation consultancy. And as we know, it is much harder to change your practices when you're a larger organization than it is to start off right in the first place. So what the Open Imperative does is it provides sources, tools to help companies understand what's going on in their organizations and how to make changes. So, you know, we talked about equity a minute ago and all the steps you need to get to 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 be able to address equity. So the open imperative is there to help you along that journey and is focusing, as I said, on pay differentials. So we will do, and these are resources are free for our members, pay audits. So we'll help you do a pay audit across your company. And then if there are discrepancies, give you some actionable steps to take in order to bridge those gaps. We give you access to benchmark data, there is the community. So there's, you know, some peer knowledge that knowledge sharing that goes on there. They have invited speakers in to talk about, you know, the topic du jour. And then in kind of the next phase, there will be what we call social proof. So things that you can use for marketing, recruiting marketing purposes that I've, our company's gone through this payout, our company is certified, blah, 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 those kinds of things. So Number one, to honor the work that companies are doing and to broaden the reach. You know, when you see that your competitor has done this, it's incentive for you to do it as well. So it's openimperative.org. I'm really proud to be part of that, helping them, helping that organization grow because I think it's really important work. It's great. For leaders who, who want to get started either with the open imperative or, you know, even just starting to think about this on their own, what are some of the tactical steps beyond the, so an audit, you know, what are the ways that they can start to fix? And I know it sounds so simple, just give people, you know, but how can they start to take action to fix their, their issues, both in correcting, but also in you know preventing these discrepancies from happening even further into the future, sorry, disparities from happening. Yeah. I mean, the audit is really important because you can't fix what you don't know. So, but there was something interesting, Mary, because I've done these audits, you know, at my companies before, and sometimes we don't like the results and nobody wants to feel like they have done anything, which is, you know, discriminatory. And so part of it is, you know, looking at the numbers, but part of it is working with your team to say, look, you're not a bad person. You weren't trying to pay women less. 
this happened for a variety of reasons. And what we need to focus on now is how do we fix it? So getting people, you know, in the right headspace is as important as just looking at the numbers because, you know, you can interpret data any kind of way you want. And you could see a pay discrepancy and say, well, you know, that person doesn't perform as well. Well, you know, this goes back to talent and contributions look different sometimes. And yes, maybe Susie isn't contributing the same things that Bob is contributing, but is she contributing in a different way, which is as valuable to your company? And if so, we should compensate for that. So it's not an easy thing to do because it's not just about the numbers, but it's important work. And once you get your head around thinking in that way, then it becomes easier on a go forward basis. Powerful. And hopefully listeners are listening and can check you out at openimperative.org. Obviously it's a major issue that's just getting, it feels like it's getting wider and wider, but do you have the numbers on improvements or are we moving still in the wrong direction as a society? So open, the open imperative launched on equal pay day. Equal pay day is the day in the year where women would have to work in order to make the same amount of money that men made at the end of the prior year. So for, as an example, equal pay day was March 15th in 2022, which meant that women had to work 75 days longer in order to make, you know, on average, the same amount of money that men made at the end of 2021. Equal pay day hasn't changed very much over the past, you know, number of years. So I think that we have a lot of work to do. I think that there is certainly heightened awareness and awareness is always the first step. So, you know, I feel good about that and we should all feel good about that. And, you know, we just need to figure out how to put some wood behind the arrow of the things that we know are true. I was kind of disappointed. So, in California in 2020, they passed a regulation about boards, gender makeup of boards, and that they had to have, you know, X number of underrepresented people, minorities or women. That got overturned a few weeks ago. So, you know, Mary, that was disappointing. And I read all these, you know, posts about, well, you know, it got overturned, but people's heads are in the right place now. And, you know, they've seen the benefits and they'll continue to do this. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Yeah. And time will tell. On the other hand, you know, there was a big win that same week with women's soccer and, you know, about the U.S. team demanding to be paid the same as men. So progress is being made and we need to celebrate the wins and, you know, get momentum from that. Thank you for bringing this into a positive light because it, it does feel frustrating. It does feel a lot of these strides, were, especially this year, so many strides that we were making for so long. And then it just feels like we're just getting pulled back on so many issues. This is not a political podcast, so I'll stop there. But I have some other questions. Our listener, it's all about the tactical, you know, what can we actually do? And you, you talked about awareness. You talked about really easy things that people can leaders can do to run their meetings more inclusively and and create space for lots of opinions in a way that meets people where they are rather than trying to force them to be the extrovert in the room. As an example, when we think about culture, you mentioned that it does start from many places in the organization leadership matters, but there's also other layers. What are the efforts that you've done over the past few years to help create a culture that does have increased belonging beyond? So trainings were one thing that you mentioned, but what else have you seen worked effectively? Yeah. So we did a lot of work 
on this at Uda Health successfully, I, I might add. And where we started was there were a couple couple tenants. We wanted to build awareness. So that that company was large male and largely white when I got there, but leadership wanted to change that. So again, that was the first thing. They wanted a different demographic, which would create obviously a different culture. And so I thought a lot about, and I worked very closely with our head of talent, Mike Aldis, who's still with the organization, about how do we approach this? And what I decided was that we wanted to use our own people and our own resources to create awareness and empathy of other people's experiences and valuing you know, their contributions. So I didn't bring in any outside help. I think that you know there are lots of uh, consultancies, culture consultants and DEI consultants, and some of them are very good friends of mine and they do good work. And I just took a different tact. And so we went about, we started off with just celebrating other cultures. Again, because our culture was pretty homogenous from the beginning, we felt like let's introduce some other cultures. And so Corinne Budoff on our team led this initiative called the Observatory. And it was about celebrating a different culture every month, either one that was already being celebrated at you know the federal level, or if not, then we would, we would choose one. And we started off with, you know, the people ops team deciding, okay, so it's Black History Month, so we're gonna, you know, focus on these six people or whatever. And we bought books for our library and publicized this on Slack and talked about it at our all hands meetings. But soon, and this was, you know, also when at the, about the time that we went remote, we decided that, you know, that was good but not great. That we really needed to involve everybody. And so we opened it up and started asking people or letting people volunteer to do presentations every week about the, whatever it was we were talking about. And so then that became much more meaningful for people because, you know, they would talk about, okay, this is, it's Women's History Month. And this is a woman that's been important to me in my life. And this is why. And people loved it. It made it personal. You know, people that you know were opening up about themselves and something that was important in their lives and the impact. And it brought, you know, figures to the fore that we didn't know about. So that was great. The most impactful was when people talked about themselves. We had one situation where it was Disability Awareness Month and one of our employees talked about his disability. It was very moving. And, you know, for one thing, just our level of respect, somebody we loved anyway, but the level of respect that we had for him to be able to overcome his disability such that we didn't even know he had it was amazing. And then just, you know, that broadened our horizons about what biases we may have. We did a session on what it means to be mixed race, which was outside of our all hands meeting. It was a separate thing and had three people on our team who were of mixed race. And I interviewed them and talked about their experiences growing up as a mixed race person and what that meant and how that shows up in the business world. One of them talked about how in meetings that she would go to with our CEO on the sales, sales side, that people in the meeting would address him and not address her and because they didn't want to mispronounce her name. Yeah. That's, and So then they just didn't even speak to her or did they just kind of say, Hey, you, I mean, how do you even get, this is wild. Yeah. I think they would, they would address the C our CEO or whoever she was with. Mm -hmm. And he was really good about bringing her into the conversation, but she noticed the other people 
like, you know, avoided her, not all the time, but this happened because they didn't want to say her name incorrectly. Mm-hmm. It's a great example of where a good intention of not wanting to offend somebody is really poorly executed. And, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we did at UDA. And we got everybody energized around, yes, our company's not diverse and having other perspectives in the room is actually going to be great. And so, you know, not just the leaders wanted to make it happen, but everybody wanted to make it happen. And everybody was more attuned to, am I being inclusive? And are there things that I'm doing that, you know, make my coworkers feel more comfortable or less comfortable and holding each other accountable? So we moved the needle on that. By the time we got acquired by Cedar, we were about close to 50-50 gender split between women. And we were probably about 70% men when I got there. Congratulations. Um, That's a big accomplishment. Yeah. And we were close to 50% white versus people of color. And we had probably been about 80% white when I got there. Wow. So, you know, that was, that was my experience. It, it really worked. And I think it was helping people develop empathy for people that they know and not just being told, you know, you should help underrepresented people because that's the right thing to do. No, because you know, your coworker that you love and know that's sitting right next to you, that's been their experience. And bringing people in the problem space and helping them to, you know, become owners, owners of the solution. I love that. So I would say that. to the extent that, that people can do that with their cultures and with their employee populations, I think you have a good chance of of moving the needle and creating the kind of culture, the inclusive, welcoming culture of belonging that you want. You mentioned in our prep call that this transition to a remote work environment may have helped improve belonging and inclusivity within the workplace to some degree, and and actually diversity particularly. You mentioned recruitment. Can you speak to that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, so that definitely helped us at UDA. We were headquartered in Salt Lake City and San Francisco, which are not particularly diverse, Salt Lake City especially, whereas where the majority of our people were, was not a particularly diverse place. And so being able to recruit from a large geography just opened up the talent pools. But, you know, let's think about it. Let's say you're a San Francisco-based company, and let's just talk about race right now. There's lots of dimensions to diversity, and we're just going to focus on that for this conversation. The San Francisco Bay Area is 6% Black. And in fact, the number of Black people in the Bay Area is actually decreasing, not increasing. So if we only recruit from here, the pool is real small. Now, if you go up to Fairfield, which is in the North Bay, it's about one or two hours outside of San Francisco, it's about 15% Black. BART is our public transportation system. There's no BART. So your pool is larger. But what kind of hellish commute would that be for someone? They're, they're not going to do it. So being able to hire remotely, right there, you can see how that would help your diversity efforts. But let's go outside of the Bay Area. Atlanta is 50% Black. D.C. is 46% Black. Chicago is 30%. New York is 24%. Houston is 22%. Like, do I need to say any more? Your pool just increased exponentially of the people that you could hire. And we're just talking about one element right now. So, yeah, 
The other thing I wanted to mention just around diversity, there was a great post on LinkedIn by Akitaha, who was a recruiter for Uber and Google. He has a new organization called Talent Stories, but it was about how to change your interviewing mindset. So, you know, if your recruiting team is bringing people of different backgrounds to the table, and yet you're still thinking about bringing people in the same way, you're probably going to stymie your efforts. So I love some of the things that, that Aki said, for example, you know, he said the old way was to ask what school they went to. The new way is to ask, can they solve the business problem that we have? That the old way was to say, what do we have on the team and how can we find more of it? Cause it's working. The new way is to say, what skills, experiences, and voices are we missing on the team? So you can find that on LinkedIn, but I think that you know, there are so many things that we need to do in order to make diversity, equity, inclusion work. And a lot of it is how we think about things. We're about out of time. I could ask you 50 more questions. Thank you so much for your perspective on all of this. And we will definitely find that post and link to it in the show notes. As we wrap up, you know, as we think about this topic, right, which is like, you have to change your mindset. You can't just try to fix this. I talked to Nathan Knight, a couple of years back around, you know, he's the head of leadership and development at Better, which I know has gone through some interesting times over the past year, but his perspective was how do you really disrupt all the parts of the organization in a way that is just, you know, rather than coming in and just teaching how to create a more inclusive environment, how do you do that within delivering feedback and within onboarding new hires and, you know, the, the recruitment process itself and really turning that into something that's embedded within the organization. That act of saying, okay, let's let's look at every part of our organization and identify where we can make change feels really big. And so you just gave an example of where in recruitment you can make those types of tactical changes to your, your organizational dynamic. Are there other places where you've seen, you know, just the if you train your employees to do you rent, you know, meetings as an example you mentioned earlier, any other parts that you think they would benefit from hearing about, places where you can adjust your style to change that mindset completely? So, yeah, I mean, I think the recruiting is important. The meeting management is important because that's where, you know, a lot of people get get their voices heard. I think what might be a more general way of making an impact is to talk about bias in general. Mm -hmm. Now, unconscious bias trainings don't really change behavior. Trainings don't train, change behavior. And there's you know a lot of people out there applying their unconscious bias trainings. That's not really what's gonna change the behavior. But having people understand that exists, having a common language around it, having it in your mind that, okay, what if I didn't take anything else away from this, it was, I should think about how I'm approaching things and approaching people. And is there possibly bias in, in what I'm doing? which spans the whole employee experience, that goes a long way. We, we did that, at, that was one of the very first things we did at UDA, which was an exercise on bias. And people talked about that for two years, how, it, how eye-opening it was to understand that bias exists and you know, it's either conscious or unconscious. And people talked about that you know, in subsequent meetings, they would say, well, you know, I, think, I think this is confirmation bias. Or, you know, it sounds like we have some similarity bias going on here. They can name I, it. I have to say, I felt so gratified yeah. that, you know, people just so just, just recognizing it 
that can make a big impact. Perfect. And you've given so many great tactical pieces that people should be able to walk away from and say, we need to try these. These are specific things that we can do today. Thank you so much. As we wrap up, my go-to question for every guest is what resources are you leaning on these days to keep you sharp in your career? I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. There are a lot of, you know, great people doing great posts out there. So I love that. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I read Quartz. Quartz also has some really good webinars that they do. Think Human also does good webinars. The HR Strategy Forum did a great webinar last week on people science. And it was about all the data that they've collected over the past two years about, you know, engagement, employee engagement. And so all these things we kind of know intuitively now backed up by 350 million data points that they got. And that was Um, HR strategy form. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great one. I, you know, I have newsletters that I read. I read HR dive. I like Noetic CPO HQ, which is a forum for CPOs to do knowledge sharing and help each other out. I love that because it helps me understand like what my colleagues are going through and keep my finger on the pulse of, you know, what's happening in the world. I also do attend events that are hosted by our VCs. So VCs will bring in speakers or have peer, you know, meetups or lunches or virtual, whatever. I find those really valuable too. Tapping your network. Thank you so much. This is great. We will share all of these ideas in the show notes so that our listeners can find those easy links. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about small steps, like one thing at a time, don't try and boil the ocean. And, you know, the the way we make change really is by touching people's hearts, not their heads. So I think that's, you know, my parting word of wisdom here is think about how how do we reach the heart? And that's in diversity, that's in culture, that's in engagement, that's in retention, that's in everything. Thank you so much, Teresa. I appreciate you making the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Mary, for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes.